moving forward, I was thinking uh, as I was preparing for this, you'll notice we are moving for- we're moving forward in a little bit of a different way in that beginning, really beginning now with the story of Noah, uh, we, uh, we're reading now narratives, stories. Sometimes a little, I'm a little reticent to use the word story because we think story as in fiction, you know what I mean? Like a storybook kind of thing. But no, narratives, that'd be another word for it, stories. So we go kind of like a chapter at a time or a story, a portion of a story at a time. The, the beginning of the book of Genesis doesn't flow so well that way. That's why it takes us a much longer time to get through those very important opening chapters. But now we're up to chapter 8 of, um, of uh, the Noah story. And uh, we saw last time, uh, basically, uh, the flood. We talked about the flood itself. Uh, and uh, we talked about uh, how it functioned as a judgment of God. And uh, we ended last time by saying how Yeshua references the flood uh, in talking about, we might say, the eschatological or end-time judgment, right? And people approach that a number of different ways. Uh, the, the most important thing that Yeshua is telling us is that, uh, that uh, we should not be lulled to sleep as Messiah followers, as disciples of Yeshua. We should not be lulled to sleep. You know, there's, there's kind of like two different kinds of people when it comes to being a believer in Yeshua and the way you, you approach the world in, in, a, in a way. This is very, very um, uh, general. Some people are uh, ready uh, uh, or have a, um, a sense that the end is coming this afternoon. And so, uh, therefore, uh, uh, some folks live in such a way as to deny the present almost uh, and uh, only focus on the coming of the Lord, okay? Uh, and do not uh, uh, pay attention so much to uh, developing a walk with God in this world and everything is related to the return of the Lord. Then you have others who don't think very much about the return of the Lord uh, and are almost totally focused on making the world a better place. How's that? You know, on, uh, or on uh, um, uh, just issues related to our world as if this is how it will always be and uh, God is not moving uh, the world forward. And of course, we know that a balance is what we really need. To always recognize that our hope is not in this world. Our hope is not in prime ministers and presidents. Our hope is not in legislation. Uh, our hope is not in progress you know, or uh, technology. If our hope was in those things, there'd be no hope, right? Because it's been a pretty long time and uh, we haven't really... Uh, moved the needle forward, uh, you know, in terms of uh, a godly world, right? Uh, and, and so our hope is in the return of the Lord. And we know that there is indeed going to be a judgment, an end-time eschatological judgment on this world. Uh, and so we know that the world is heading in a particular direction. So at the same time, while we're focused on that, we know that our hope is a living hope. In fact, um, you can read 1 Peter chapter 1 uh, when you get home, and I would encourage you to do so because there you have a very clear, balanced approach to it. It's called a living hope, right? Our hope is in the Messiah's return, uh, and that hope is what gets us through uh, the ebbs and flows of this life today, see? Uh, and so no matter what's going on in this world today, we know that God is moving the world forward uh, to, this, uh, uh, to this end uh, that, depending on how you look at it or depending how you stand, is either duress, is either uh, disastrous or fantastic, okay? Uh, but there is an end and very important for us to, to, uh, to remember. And, and so last time we ended with 
Yeshua uh, saying that, you know, people will be uh, eating and drinking and merry, making merry and they'll be doing their thing and, and one will be taken and one will be left. And in speaking of uh, that the one who is prepared, the one who is ready, uh, you know, uh, is not taken in judgment, right? In the context of that, in the context of that uh, passage. So uh, very important for us to have that balanced view. See, that balanced view is, I know that I know the Lord and I know that I have an assurance of my salvation, but I got to be ready. I can't be lulled to sleep. So there's always this little bit of tension. That's the great thing about the Lord. There, there are these paradoxes all over the place uh, in the scriptures that, yes, I'm secure in the Lord, but I need to be ready. See, we should never be lulled to sleep. Because when we're lulled to sleep, uh, one might say just culture takes over and we just do things the way we've always done them. And, uh, and, and uh, it, it keeps us sometimes from really being serious about the things of God. See? So the flood story is a reminder of all of that uh, to us because that's how people indeed were, um, were living. But... We know that it was a life uh, of uh, debauchery before God. And uh, we see here that uh, God uh, brings a judgment on this world. But not on, uh, he does not end the world. But he does bring a, a, a judgment uh, on, uh, on the world. It was not just storm clouds brewing it wasn't a big uh, hurricane off the coast. Uh, no, this was something uniquely done by God, where he opens up uh, the heavens and it rains profusely and water comes from below. Uh, and we saw last time uh, what happens, this, uh, this uh, uh, flood. All right. Now, uh, at the, the very last verse of chapter 7 is, and the waters prevailed upon the earth 150 days. Now, in chapter 8, comes the aftermath. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark. And God caused the wind to pass over the earth and the water uh, uh, subsided. Also the fountains of the deep and the floodgates of the sky were closed, and the rain from the sky was restrained. And the water receded steadily from the earth, and all the end of the 150 days the water decreased. And in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark rested upon the mountains of Ararat. And the water decreased steadily until the tenth month, in the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the mountaintops became visible. All right. So the first thing we read is that God remembered Noah and all the beasts and the cattle that were with him in the ark. So when, when the Bible says that God remembers a person, I, he is blessing them in some way. He's either uh, delivering them from a harmful situation he opens up a barren womb. Uh, he blesses uh, an individual or a people. So here we see God remembered Noah. It wasn't like God had forgotten Noah and then he remembered there's a guy in an ark. Wait a minute. No. Uh, God remembered Noah in the sense that he spared Noah. God saved Noah you know, and his family and the cattle, and everything else. God delivered uh, uh, Noah, okay? Uh, and, uh, and what's also interesting, uh, uh, it's very personal. Uh, it doesn't tell us here, for example, it doesn't say, but God delivered Noah because he was righteous or something. God delivered Noah. He delivered the man, his family, and the, uh, the animals uh, of the ark. We read about Abraham, that God uh, remembered Abraham in Genesis chapter 19, uh, having to do uh, with uh, Lot. God remembered uh, Rachel opening up her, uh, her womb. Uh, in Exodus, God remembers 
His, he hears the cry of the people in slavery and bondage. God remembers them, and he remembers uh, his covenant. So God saved Noah and his family uh, and, the, uh, uh, and the animals. And then it says, God caused a wind to pass over the earth, and the waters subsided. Now, the first thing we want to notice about this is, again, just like we uh, talked about last week about with the waters, this is a reminder to us of creation. Now, we talked about the, like the decreation <laughs> uh, with, the, with the flood waters. Now, God sends his uh, uh, a ruach, wind, spirit, right, uh, across uh, uh, over the earth. The earth is full of water. And so now it's like God is recreating over again the world. And it's written this way to remind us of the beginning of Genesis chapter 1 over again. Okay. Now, also you want to notice just a little bit of grammar here in Hebrew as well as in English that you have the, a lot of passive, passive verbs. Okay. So notice it says, first of all, God caused a wind to pass over the earth, okay? Uh, the wind is caused by God, okay? Uh, then uh, and it says here, the fountains of the deep and the floodgates of the sky were closed. The rain from the sky was restrained. Then you see here, not a passive, but the water receded steadily. Uh, the water decreased, Okay. So the point of it is there is that God is make he made it flood and now he's making it stop. It's not a case of now uh, there was a, a jet stream uh, from the south that now made its way over there. No, none of that. This is not a natural disaster. All right, the flood is not a natural disaster. It is a supernatural disaster. Okay. Uh, it is planned out by God in a very orderly way. It lasts a specific period of time. It ends on a particular day. And the waters even recede in a very orderly way. All right? Very important. A supernatural judgment. So <clears throat> I know, and I've read uh, articles and books about uh, using the flood as an illustration of, of how of, uh, things related to natural disasters. But this is not a natural disaster. This is a supernatural disaster. Uh, and we know that just before Messiah returns, there's going to be another huge supernatural disaster. So it's sort of like uh, at the beginning, generally speaking, at the beginning, and at the end, there uh, is judgment. Okay. Now, uh, we'll return to that, you know, in a, in a few minutes. All right. So now I want to point out something else here in verse 4. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark rested upon the mountains of Ararat. The first thing is, is just like with the beginning of the flood, you read about sevens and things related to sevens. Uh, and uh, more than anything else, I think it speaks of a completed act that God is doing and an orderly act that God is doing. So we don't want to um, miss out on, on that. Also, if you were to chart this out, you can see even you have sevens at the ends, you have 40s, and then you have 150s. 150, 40, sevens. And so it's very orderly. The numbers are very orderly. And I would encourage you to uh, take the Torah course, take a Genesis course at MSI, uh, study it on your own, uh, and you'll see how orderly this chaotic flood was. All right? But there's something else. We have all heard about the ark resting on Mount Ararat. Now, today, yes, there is a Mount Ararat. But according to the Bible, Ararat is an area and the ark rested somewhere in it. Not on Mount Ararat, but one of the mountains in Ararat. Now, where is that? 
Uh, it would be uh, eastern Turkey, where Armenia would be, in that, that uh, neck of the woods. All right? Uh, but no one knows for sure. And you know, I will just share with you uh, an opinion. All right? And that is that I think some things in the Bible, like where Moses is buried, for example, are hidden from us for particular reasons, on purpose. Uh, so that they don't be, most likely, uh, that, so that they don't become places of shrines uh, and worship, and, and worshiping places. Now, of course, we didn't really get that, did we? Just visit the Middle East anytime, and, and you'll see that. And, uh, and so personally, uh, uh, I think that when people are searching for things like the Ark of the Covenant and searching for Noah's Ark, Great for the History Channel, Discovery Channel. Great for that, you know what I mean? But that's not what these stories are about. It's not what they're about. And sometimes we get so fixated on those things that we miss what it's even in the text of the Bible for. So I think it's healthy to investigate those things. I would never say it's not or the science of it and all that. I think it is healthy and I do think it is good. But that is not the purpose of the text. That's all I'm saying, okay? So the ark landed somewhere uh, in, that, uh, in that area, all right? All right. And then it says that, uh, in verse 5, and the water decreased steadily until the 10th month. I, okay, I, in the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains became visible. Well, that is very interesting. So it tells us that the ark was gra it grounded before you could see any kind of land. It grounded uh, around the top of one of these mountains. And it stayed there for three months until the water receded enough that you could see the tops of the mountains. Okay, all right. Uh, so that's, uh, I think, helpful to us just in understanding how this uh, takes place. And then they, then, then they sat there, so to speak, for another 40 days. Then it came about at the end of 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made. Uh, now, this window is kind of interesting. Uh, the window had to be either on top uh, because... Uh, uh, most likely, Noah could not look out and see has the water receded, okay? But the vantage point of the window had to be such that he had to send out a bird to see how, where, the, where the water has receded. So that's kind of interesting, okay? All right. So he sends out a raven, right? Okay, now that's interesting. Uh, you know, there's no really... There's no great explanation as to why he sent out a raven. It is a, uh, just by observation, it is an unclean bird. It is a scavenger bird. Uh, and so probably uh, uh, if the raven uh, uh, either didn't return at all uh, uh, or brought back food, maybe he might know that the water has receded. But notice what happens. He sent out a raven and it flew here and there. Really, you could, here and there, uh, it's more like went and came back or flew back and forth uh, uh, until the water was dried up from the earth. Okay, so the raven is flying around uh, and evidently comes back because Noah uh, has to send out another, another bird. Okay, so it flew here and there. All right. Then he sends out a dove to see if the water uh, was abated from uh, the, the face of, of the land. But here we read, the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot. So she returned to him into the ark. She returned to him into the ark for the water was on the surface of all the earth. Okay. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark to himself. So. One thing we learn is that the raven flying around doesn't, doesn't actually return to Noah, but the raven's flying around. 
and, uh, and, uh, but does not exactly return into the ark. Now, there's something very interesting here about Noah, and this is made much of by people that study this, that you know how um, you probably are familiar that there are other flood stories around. We haven't spent a lot of time on the, the differences in those flood stories, but one of them is very striking here, is, and that is that this fact that Noah reaches out and takes the dove and brings the dove back in. That there's some kind of relationship of Noah and the dove. Uh, that, that Noah reaches out, takes the dove, and pulls the dove back in. Also, the dove is a clean animal. And also, doves in the Bible are uh, kind of interesting. Doves represent the presence of God, right? Uh, when Yeshua is immersed... We read, you know, that the heavens open up and a dove comes upon him, right? Uh, and so that's rather interesting. Um, okay? All right. So then it says, he waited yet another seven days. There's another seven, another seven days. And again, he sent out the dove from the ark. And the dove came to him toward evening. And behold, in her beak was a freshly picked olive leaf. That is, I'm just going to say, that raises all kinds of questions right? If you're reading this carefully, like evidently an olive tree has grown or an olive tree lives. This is not a dead leaf. This is a, a leaf that is freshly plucked. Go figure, okay? But life, life, in other words, is what the dove brings back. I'm sure Henry Morris has a reason for it, right? If you know what I'm saying. But I, I think it's just, you know, there are a lot of supernatural things in this story, all right? And I think that sometimes, you know, it's important that we recognize, again, it's a supernatural judgment, so it's also a, a supernatural salvation also. And I think that we don't want to lose sight of that, okay? Uh, so there's a freshly picked olive leaf, something that is alive. Now, Olive leaves, of course, in the Bible, uh, are prevalent, and they represent life. You know, one of my favorite passages is in Jeremiah, chapter about olive, olive leaves anyway, is in Jeremiah chapter 11. In Jeremiah 11, in verse uh, 16, The Lord called you by name, a green olive tree, beautiful in fruit and form. With the noise of a great tumult, he has kindled fire on it, and his branches are worthless. Okay? So the point of that is, is a judgment on a judgment, but I just wanted to point out the olive tree represents something that is fruitful. In this context, it is a passage that God is going to judge. But but the olive tree, beautiful in fruit and form. Okay? So olives represent that olive oil, very important. Uh, in the scriptures, uh, olive trees, uh, representative of comfort, representative of peace, of reconciliation. You know how we like to say, offer the olive branch, right, uh, as a way of peace. It's all, and, and for that reason, it is, by the way, part of Israel's a national uh, logo, uh, an olive uh, branch. All right. Uh, so, we see now that the dove uh, brings back an olive branch, reminding us again, not only that the water has abated, but a starting anew. Uh, comfort, reconciliation, all the things that olive branches and olive trees would remind us of. Then he waited yet another seven days and sent out the dove, but she did not return to him again. Okay, so now in verses 13 and 14, it will explain why. Now it came about in the 601st year, in the first month, on the first of the month, the water was dried from on the earth. It was a year, okay? It was a year plus a, a few days, depending on how you count the days. Then Noah removed the covering of the ark, right? So there's a, there was a covering on the ark. He removes the covering. Peter sent me these uh, lovely uh, pictures of a recreation of the ark, and it has kind of like a flat top, right? 
Uh, and so Noah removes the cover. You must, can you only imagine what that must have felt like? Oh, fresh air, right? Removed the covering of the ark, looked, and behold, the surface of the ground was dried up. And in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dry. Okay. I, I, so I, in verse 14, the word for the earth was dry is the same as when we read uh, here in um, verse 9 of uh, Genesis, uh, chapter 1. Okay? Uh, actually, uh, verses 6, 7, 8, and 9 of Genesis 1. Then, the Lord, then God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse. Right? And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning a second day. Then God said, Let the waters below the heavens be gathered in one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. The dry land. And so now, dry land. Again, uh, we have. Uh, God separated in Genesis 1. God separates those waters so there could be dry land. Then in uh, uh, Genesis chapter 7, those waters become unseparated and the earth floods. Now they become separated again. Okay? All right. Uh, and there is dry land. Again, lots of little places in here that remind us of creation. Right? Then God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring, bring out uh, with you uh, every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may breed abundantly on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. Noah doesn't go anywhere until God tells him to get out of the ark. Uh, he doesn't leave the ark when the dove doesn't return. And just as God told him to get on the ark, God closed the door. Now God tells Noah, leave the ark. So we see here the obedience of Noah, uh, very much so, again, Noah uh, is told now to leave the ark with the animals. And notice what it says. Now, what are they supposed to do? Be fruitful and multiply. Just like what we read in Genesis chapter 1. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Now, they're told to leave the ark and be fruitful and multiply. Start over. God is a Lord of second chances. Not to mention third and fourth and fifth chances and, and so on. Man had corrupted, ruined. Remember we talked about that last? Ruined the creation. Corrupted it. Looted it. Destroyed it. Messed it up. God did not say, I'm done with it completely. No. He brings a judgment to save a remnant. He brings a judgment to save a remnant. And so it is true, you know, even in our own lives, I'll just pause here with a little application, that even in our own lives, God allows us to start again. We may suffer consequences in our own lives, or even in the lives of those who are around us or the people that we love, but God will never leave us or forsake us. I think I was saying this to somebody the other day. That is basically the one promise that we can count on about, uh, uh, about our day-to-day -day life today, that God will never leave us or forsake us. Never does he say it's going to be easy. Never does he say that it's simple. Never does he say that, you know, it's a no-brainer. But he says he'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. Okay? Uh, and so that is basically, God has not broken his promise to mankind from the beginning. But because of the communal destruction, God must bring a, a judgment, but he does not destroy mankind. He finds slash provides Noah to, and, uh, you know, and then uh, representatives of the animals to be fruitful and multiply. 
God saves the remnant over and over again in the Bible. We see it over and over and over again. There, are, there has been uh, certainly uh, great judgments on Israel, where God has even destroyed the city. Remember in Jeremiah, uh, uh, Jeremiah uh, sarcastically says uh, 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 to the people, you keep saying the temple, the temple, the temple. Read it in chapter 7 of Jeremiah. You keep saying the temple, the temple, the temple. The temple's not going to save you, Jeremiah says. You know, you can keep saying, oh, the temple, the temple, the temple. No. Uh, and God does the, at that time, the unthinkable. Destroys, the, the temple is destroyed. That's the first time. It happens again. It seems like it's the unthinkable. Is God destroying all of the people? No. But in the last destruction of Jerusalem, it took 2,000 years for any kind of uh, Jewish sovereignty in that land. And we know all of the, the, you know, the dark and difficult history of all that time. Seemingly, God must be absent. No, God was not absent. There's a remnant. There was a remnant in Noah's day, and we see it uh, throughout the scriptures, and we certainly will see it at the, uh, at the end. All right. So we see here uh, that God spoke to Noah, go out of the ark, you and your wife, your sons and your sons' wives with you, bring out with you every living thing, like we said, of all the flesh that is with you, birds, animals, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they, that they may breed abundantly on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him, every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by their families from the ark. Okay. It could be the end of the story. And then they went and were fruitful and multiplied. And, and uh, there you go. But then notice, certainly, what Noah does. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings uh, on the altar. So, amazingly, or maybe not so amazingly, Noah, uh, the first thing we read is that Noah builds an altar. Sounds a lot like Abraham, you know, after something great would happen, Abraham would build an altar to the Lord and give it a name. So here, Noah built an altar to the Lord. Uh, uh, He worships God. That's what he does, okay? The first thing Noah does is he worships God and worships God in the correct way. He brings clean animals and offers burnt offerings uh, to the Lord. Long before there was any kind of legislation about burnt offerings, he brings burnt offerings. Burnt offerings were like whole offerings, one might say. They represented everything. They represented coming into the presence of God, there for purposes of atonement, there for purposes of relationship, uh, of praise and thanksgiving. It's like a burnt offering is the general offering uh, of approaching God. That's why you read it first in, uh, in Leviticus, and probably the most often offered offering. Say that again. Okay. Now, in Hebrew, the word is uh, ola, ola. And it means not only uh, just, you know, burnt offering, but it, it speaks of rising up. That is where ultimately the word aliyah comes from, to go up, to rise up, okay? Uh, and so uh, the smoke and the smell of the burnt offering reaches up to God, and it it, uh, it is also used in the Bible to represent uh, like communication with God, like prayer, okay? Uh, and so Noah worships God. The first thing he does, he comes out of the ark, he worships God, and then notice the response of God. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said to himself, not to Noah. So uh, very interesting. It's kind of like another moment where of God's self-disclosure, you know what I mean, of of where he is uh, uh, speaking um, in his essence. I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, 
and I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. So it's very interesting because if you go back to chapter 6 in verse 5, it says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was very great on the earth, and that the intent of his thoughts of his heart was only evil continuously. Then we read that God was grieved, and then he's going to blot out every living thing except for Noah. So now, in verse 21, you read again about the evil intent of man's heart. But now, God says, nevertheless, I'm not going to destroy uh, the earth ever again like I did. So it's very interesting. Noah's intercession made a difference, may I suggest. Noah's worship makes a difference. And what the people deserve, what humankind and the world deserves, they will never, the earth will never receive. And that is complete annihilation because the, the intent of every man's heart uh, is evil. God will never do it again. Now, when it says, I will never again curse the ground, the curse that we read in chapter 3 is still there, but this additional layer of cursing of, of the flood of destruction, the curse in chapter 3 is not destruction. The curse here is destruction. God will never destroy it again, as he did. Okay? Uh, and, and so that's, then you read in verse 22, while the earth remains. Now, that is, you know, uh, that's probably not the best translation. Okay? It doesn't give, the, in Hebrew, literally, it's all the days of the earth. So it, it, it doesn't mean, like, while the earth remains, meaning, well, what ha until it doesn't remain anymore, you know? No. It simply says, it's like saying from now on, all the days of the earth, okay? Seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. All right? Now, this is, you know, that, that's very poetic and actually pretty interesting in and of itself. Uh, it means, it could mean a number of different things, and all of them are probably in the category of what it means. That, in other words, the seasons of the year, seasons will continue, harvest time, seed time, day, night, cold, heat, winter, summer. Uh, it could also just simply be like what we call merisms, meaning from A to Z, whether we're talking about day and night, months of the year, uh, seasons of the year, the earth is going to, the world is going to continue its rhythm. It's going to continue its rhythm, okay? That also is a very healthy uh, promise, I believe, as well, because, uh, as I said, from what God says in the Noah story, the earth is not going to be destroyed, it's not going to be, it can get bad. We certainly uh, do all kinds of things to the environment uh, and to each other, but it is not going to extinguish, okay? That is a promise from God, all right? All right. So what we see here, though, is uh, something very interesting, whereas in chapter 7, the, uh, really, the, the theme is judgment. God has, God has brought judgment and we said at the end last time, God is going to bring judgment again. And we need to be prepared. In chapter 8, it's more about uh, God's redemption. More about uh, God's uh, uh, purposes. We see, I think very importantly, that Noah plays the role of intercessor. Okay? Noah worships God. He comes out of the ark. He worships God. God now says, I will not destroy the world again like this. We see in uh, 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 how, uh, when Abraham intercedes uh, for uh, the people of Sodom, right? We know that there, there was no one uh, there except Lot. Lot is saved from Sodom. There is a remnant in Sodom, and that is Lot and his daughters, Okay. Uh, and so Noah is saved. But Abraham, the point is Abraham intercedes. Another great moment of intercession uh, is uh, Moses uh, with the uh, golden calf. There, God is going to destroy 
not the whole world. He's going to destroy Israel and start all over again. It's a little bit different than Noah here. Uh, uh, Moses says, don't do it, right? And you have this exchange like going back between God and, 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 uh, and Moses. Moses intercedes. There is a judgment, but it is not a complete judgment. Uh, and then, of course, in the uh, coming of the Messiah, Yeshua uh, came, as we read in uh, the Gospel of John, in chapter 3, 16 and 17, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe him has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Uh, and so in the uh, coming of the Messiah, Yeshua came to save the world, not to judge the world, not to destroy the world. Judgment must happen in order to save the world. And so, in other words, when, Yeshua, when, when God brought the destruction upon the face of the earth, it was not for the purpose of simply uh, uh, getting rid of everybody. It was so that man, it was so severe that there was only Noah and his family, but it was, it was through that judgment that deliverance came. It was through that judgment that deliverance came. I, uh, uh, and, and so we see, uh, certainly in, uh, in a variety of places in the text of the Torah, but, but if you jump all the way, uh, certainly to the, let's say, to the end, when there is the great end-time judgment. The end result of that judgment is the salvation, uh, is a new heaven and a new earth, a new Jerusalem. Uh, uh, the, the, the nations are coming to Jerusalem and learning from Yeshua. Uh, when you read, uh, for example, in um, Zechariah uh, chapter 12, in verse 4 of uh, chapter 12, it says, In that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with bewilderment and his rider with madness. But I will watch over the house of Judah while I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Then the clans of Judah will say in their hearts, A strong support for us are the inhabitants of Jerusalem through the Lord of hosts, their God. In that day I will make the clans of Judah like a firepot among the pieces of wood and a flaming torch among sheaves. So they will consume on the right hand and on the left, all the surrounding peoples, while the inhabitants of Jerusalem again dwell in their own sight. In Jerusalem, the Lord will also save the tents of Judah, first in order that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not be magnified above Judah. Verse 8, In that day the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the one who is feeble among them in that day will be like David, and the house of David will be like God and the angel of the Lord before them. And it will come about in that day that I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem, and I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications. They will look upon me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping of a firstborn. Now in that day and other places in Zechariah, it talks about great horrible things that are going to happen. And uh, this great judgment is going to bring Israel to her knees and to finally recognize uh, the Messiah. In fact, it's called, that period of time is called the time of Jacob's trouble. The time of Jacob's trouble. But at the end of the day, the world, the earth is cleansed. There is a judgment. And then we have the deliverance. You have it in Noah's day, this judgment and uh, deliverance. Yeshua, the, the wonderful thing about Yeshua is is that he takes the judgment on himself for all who will embrace him. If you embrace Yeshua, you are spared the judgment of God. You may suffer, but you are spared the judgment of God. And that's why he says what we read in John chapter 3, that, if, that those who are judged have been, have been judged already. In other words, the world 
in the world is like it was in the days of Noah. Everybody's going to be judged unless you embrace Yeshua. It's not a, so the message is good news. It's the message you're, you're misunderstanding the message if it's oh you mean if I don't you mean in other words in other words you're saying God provided an ark and so that means if I don't get on the ark I die? Well, how mean is God then for providing an ark? Because if I don't get on the ark how narrow of God, then I die. No, the coming of the Messiah is good news. Good news because the world is judged. The world is corrupted. But God sent the Messiah to bear our sins so that we do not have to be judged. We are not destined for judgment. The, uh, a, a, a Messiah follower is not destined for the judgment of God. We may suffer in this world horribly. But we are not going to be judged apart from God. The very worst thing that could ever happen to us is that we're with the Lord. Okay? That's what I mean by this judgment. We are never going to be judged in that way. Okay? There is a judgment upon believers. We read about it in 1 Corinthians, right? The judgment seat of Messiah, where uh, you might look at it as God is going to play a film of our whole lives in front of us. Right? And, and what will be burned up is not ourselves, uh, but our works that were done out of selfishness or for our own selves or evil or immoral or unethical. But what will remain forever is what we do in our service uh, to God. Okay? That's the kind of judgment, positive judgment, you might, you might call it, uh, where, where there's an inheritance and rewards, those kinds of things. But we will never suffer, see, this judgment, because because the good news is that God sent the Messiah, see, to save us so that we're not going to be judged. That is indeed uh, uh, good news. And so for us, God has called us, when we read the story of Noah, we need to be, as it were, kind of like Noah. We need to be a comfort. We need to worship God, just like when he, you know, th this is very interesting, one, picture, one metaphor of the ark is, is uh, we need to get in the ark in order to be saved from judgment, right? But another picture of the ark is that we're not called to stay in the ark, right? Now, yes, uh, we are called, we, we, we are in Messiah Yeshua. That is one picture of the ark. But in another way, when it comes to Yeshua, we, it's a little bit different in that we're called to get out of the ark and live out our salvation in this world. We're called to go, go from this place, one might say, just like Israel had to leave Mount Sinai, right? We're called, so to speak, to leave the ark and to worship God and to be intercessors in this world. In a way, you could say the ark travels with us wherever we go, I guess, if we, we continue the metaphor that, that, that way. But we are called to be intercessors. We are called to bring this message uh, to, uh, to this world. And so, important for us to understand, just to recap this, God's purpose is not simply to destroy, but to save. To save from sin, right? To save, sin must be removed. Okay, God removes the sin in Noah's day, Noah is left. Uh, in Moses' day, God removes those who are guilty uh, with a golden calf. With Yeshua, he removes the sin and allows us to live, right? And so God is calling upon us to be like a Noah, but in a little bit of a different way. We could use the illustration uh, uh, that Ezekiel uses of standing in, uh, of standing in the uh, the gap. Finally, here in uh, Ezekiel chapter chapter twenty two, verses twenty nine and thirty, the people of the land have practiced oppression and committed robbery, and have wronged the poor and needy, and have oppressed the sojourner with without justice. And I searched for a man or a person among them who should build up the wall and stand in the gap before me for the land, that I should not destroy it. But I found no one. Right. What a great uh, verse uh, challenge for us to be people who indeed stand in the gap, stand in the gap on behalf of people, 
by uh, our intercessory prayer, by sharing the good news. For our desire in presenting uh, the good news of Yeshua is not uh, condemnation, but one of salvation, okay? Uh, one of the love of God. Uh, and, uh, and the story of Noah serves as a marvelous example uh, on that. So we are called, in one sense, to get in the ark in Yeshua, but in another way, uh, after we believe, we're called to go out and do something, right? Not do nothing, not just wait, but do something. And God says to us, get out of the ark now, be fruitful and multiply, uh, be my servants in this world. So we're called to live out our salvation, to move forward, uh, and to therefore uh, make uh, that difference in this world as we await uh, the future to unfold. Uh, and so on one hand, let us live uh, robustly in this world uh, in a satisfied way, uh, you know, making a difference where we live, being a light in the midst of darkness, but always recognizing that there is an end and there is going to be a day of judgment and a day when Messiah returns as king. So may we be ready, may we be prepared, may we serve, uh, may we cling to, uh, may we cling to uh, Yeshua. May we indeed, uh, if we know Messiah, uh, recognize that we are part of that remnant, and may we be people who um, are communicators of this great message to add to the remnant. Let's pray. Lord, uh, thank you, God, that you love this world so much that you provided Noah. And yes, there was a great judgment, but also a great deliverance. And Lord, we know that the day is coming in this world where there be again a great judgment. But yes, again, a great deliverance. And Lord, thank you, God, that you have indeed delivered us. May we live in the light. May we be children of the light, Lord. And may we be people who, yes, Look forward to that day uh, of consummation, Lord. And uh, may we have that kind of zeal to bring the message of Messiah uh, to our people. Truly good news. We pray in Messiah's name.